Thanks, Joe. And thank you, Janice, for your great testimony. Thank you for encouraging us with your heartfelt words, uh, pointing us to Christ and God's faithfulness to you, um, God's faithfulness and having people share the gospel and surrounding you with Christian friends and roommates and um, finding a biblical church in Berkeley. You know, that's, a, that's a miracle in and of itself. And to hear that you know, that's, God's word is not chained, even in Berkeley, uh, bastion of liberalism and atheistic uh, philosophies, God's word is proclaimed and praise God that God has led you down here to Cornerstone uh, for you to grow and, and serve and, and, and learn with us and look forward, if God wills, many years of uh, worship and ministry together. As Pastor Mark shared, yes, uh, we have a pretty uh, prolonged uh, process of membership and we interview our members and ha- ask them to give their public uh, testimony of faith. Um, the one biblical um, requirement of all Christians is baptism, um, post-faith, a public declaration of one's allegiance to Christ is to uh, declare their testimony by immersion um, in water. This is a public declaration that a person is with Christ and is with the church. It is our way of also embracing that person into our body. He or she is baptized into the church. And so it is somewhat like a, a birth ritual. You're being birthed into our family and we um, relate to you, approach you, and serve you, and, and relate to you as a brother or sister in Christ. So if you have not been baptized as a Christian, that opportunity is coming up. At our retreats, we, on a Sunday morning, we get all dressed up and go to the uh, pool at the hotel, and we have our baptism service. That's coming up in a few weeks. So if you have not been baptized, please uh, track down... Pastor Joe, would you stop, pray for us and read the scriptures, track him down, and uh, let him know that of your desire to be baptized. Well, before we get to the message, I want to thank everyone for, from the bottom of my heart for praying for me. Um, especially grateful to the leaders of Cornerstone for stepping in and carrying my load of ministry past Sunday. It was about three weeks ago, I had a real... You know, busy week, busy, it's been a busy November and December, first two weeks of January was not, not particularly busy, but busy with a lot of ministry and assignments and responsibilities, and I started getting really itchy on my back, so um, I'm a little concerned, and there was a little, you know, growths, you know, occurring on my back, and I thought it was uh, food poisoning, some bad Chinese food I had in, in Downey maybe. I didn't think, that can't be, because I've been there all my life, you know, it can't be, but maybe it was, or I thought it was some, some kind of allergic reaction to some detergent, or something I came in contact with, or a spider bite. Well, two Sundays ago, I mean, it was very, very uncomfortable, so I, I showed Dr. Huey um, this, you know, rash on my back, and he didn't know what it was, so he thought, you should go see a doctor, <laughs> you know? You're a doctor, huh? Like he gave me some few things. He needs to go, you know, go to Kaiser. Well, <laughs> next day I went in and the doctor tells me I had the shingles. And I'm like, you know, I heard of that once, you know, here and there, but I had no idea what it was. 
He explained to me what, what, it, what it was, but the Kaiser doctor, so I had to go home and research it for myself to... Not, because, you know, Kaiser doctors, they're busy, right? Kaiser doctors. He spent like five minutes with me, you know, I'm asking all these questions, like, moving on, moving on. So I go home, and I'm, I'm an expert on shingles now, <laughs> after having done thorough research. So if you ever get the shingles, you give me a call. Don't call your doctor. Well, it's apparently something that if you had chickenpox as a child, then it stays in your body, and like 10% of people, it triggers, uh, uh, usually late in life, over 50 years old. And, but, I mean, I'm not 50, but, you know, and it causes severe pain. I mean, just incredible pain. It's like someone stabbing you with a sharp, burnt butter knife on your back and shoulders for the past five days. I, I went through just really extreme discomfort and extreme pain, and I just, you know, it's clinging to God and His Word, and I praise God for my wife. She was taking care of three kids at home. You know, taking care of Elizabeth and Emma and Pastor James. And she did a great and fantastic job. I was really encouraged by just your words, your emails, your phone calls. Someone called me and told me that Hudson Taylor had shingles. So I was really, wow, that's great. You know? <laughs> Hudson Taylor. And then someone else, some brother called me and said, David Letterman had shingles. I was like, Shane, what the, how does that help me? <laughs> like, you know, my wife could be called, thanks a lot. You know, David Letterman at Shingles. I don't know what to do with that, but now I know. Well, I am much, much better. I'm about 80, 85%, you know, but it's a pain I can fight through, play through. You know, there's injuries where you go on the injured reserves, but there are injuries that you can play through, and that's the injury I have now. Thank you for your prayers. And even with the pain and discomfort, I think I felt, experienced a little bit of what Paul experienced in his letters that he described in his letters. In 2 Corinthians 11, you don't need to turn there, but Paul talks about the trials and tribulations, the travails that he underwent as an apostle of Christ, how because of his ministry of proclaiming the gospel throughout Asia Minor, that he was beaten, he was robbed, he was shipwrecked, he had often gone without food. Five times he was beaten with rods, 39 times. Five times. That's that's horrendous. I mean, he went through pain upon pain, heartache after heartache, physical trial after physical trial, and yet the, the, the cap of his pain, the height of his pain was not the physical pain that he experienced, but was the spiritual turmoil of caring for Christians. He said in 2 Corinthians 11, 28, Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is not weak? And I do not feel weak. Is there a Christian that goes into a point of temptation or weakness and I don't feel it? He says, no. Who is led, led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? In Galatians 4.19, Paul described the pain of discipling a young believer and, and teaching him or her and training him or her into Christ-likeness as giving a birth. The pains of labor, pains of childbirth. And I can in a small way identify what Paul said. I tell you the truth, shingles was the most painful experience of my life. The most prolonged pain I've ever experienced. But it pales in comparison to the emotional, spiritual pain that, that I go through in caring for Christians. And I tell you the truth. 
and all the shepherds and leaders of Cornerstone, pastors of Cornerstone, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, the greatest pain in my life is this. is a side of believers who are stagnant in their walk. Christians who are perpetually immature. Christians who just make mistake after mistake, make poor decision after poor decision, who live in selfishness, self-centeredness, and rebellion against God. It hurts so much more than the physical pain. Uh, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about, right? If you're a parent and you see your child um, rebel against God, rebel against you, you see your son or daughter hurt others, hurt siblings, you know what I'm talking about, the pain that you feel, the disappointment, the heartache. Well, if you are a shepherd, you understand, it's magnified by the number of members of Cornerstone. You know, even in the midst of my pain, my, my prayer was really not for myself. Because I knew that this pain will one day end. But my prayer was for members of Cornerstone, for all of you. Because as your shepherd, as one of your shepherds, I so want you to grow in Christ. I so want to see brothers and sisters of our church grow spiritually. To be uh, men and women who are godly, humble, devoted, faithful to the Lord. But the truth is, many Christians at Cornerstone are in a state of almost barrenness. state of almost barrenness. And many believers, many professing Christians, have very little spiritual, spiritual fruit. You know, it hurts me to say this about my own, our own church, but it's true. Our church has a lot of talk, a lot of frenzied activity, a lot of ministry, and a lot more talk. But most people are not bearing forth a bountiful harvest of true spiritual fruit. I mean, that's the truth. And I want to be loyal to truth. And I am telling the truth here. John Stott has said this about the church at large, but he could, he could have said it about Cornerstone, and it would have been... It would have been right. He said the Christian landscape and just put in their cornerstone. Cornerstone is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers. The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. Because, of thousands, of, because thousands of people still ignore Christ's words. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today. So-called nominal Christianity. Scores of people covered with a thin veneer of Christianity, involved enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. End quote. I, I really think that if we, were, we compare ourselves with Christianity at large, we're doing great. We're mature. We're godly. We're doing well. But if we compare ourselves to the standard of the Word of God, we would say, woe is me. I am bearing very little spiritual fruit or I'm almost barren. The spiritual fruits that I have are fruits that I bore years ago. But in recent history, if I'm honest with myself, I can't say I've borne any true spiritual fruit. Well, what is the reason that so many Christians are not growing? 
Well, what is the reason that so many believers are barren? We've got a pear tree in the backyard. That thing's been uh, taking up space and water for several years that we've been there. And that pear tree has bore one pear, one fruit per year. I'm like this close to cutting it down. What kind of tree is that? All right. Now, what's the reason? I don't know what the reason for our tree back in our backyard, why it doesn't produce more, more pears. But for Christians, what is the reason for our barrenness in terms of our spiritual fruit? The answer is found in verse 4. answer is found in verse 4. Verses 1, 2, and 3 identifies our, our Lord's role. He is the vine. Verse 1, the Father is the vine dresser. So his, God's, God the Father, His job is to prune the fruit, take care of the vineyard. So our, there's no weakness in Christ. He is the true vine. He is the life-giving vine. God the Father, He's not a lazy gardener. He's not a lazy farmer. He's not a sluggard. He is he's diligently pruning the vineyard. The problem the reason that many Christians do not bear fruit is found in verse 4. This is the one responsibility that the believer has to bear fruit. And all, we do just one thing. Three words summarize the believer's responsibility. Abide in me. Abide in me. That's, that's our singular responsibility. We'll find this out later on, but Christ promises, Christ guarantees anyone abides in me, he will bear much fruit. Doesn't matter our upbringing, doesn't matter our personality, doesn't matter our, our background or our intelligence or our giftedness or lack thereof or talents. All those things do not matter. Our insufficiency is understood and accepted. Our weakness is acknowledged. We agree with Christ. But the miracle is that God chooses weak vessels as us. And produces spiritual fruit. That's why it's a miracle. That's why Christ can promise to everyone that if anyone abides in Christ, it's a promise, guarantee, he or she will bear much spiritual fruit. Therefore, abiding Christ is fundamental and essential. Uh, the question remains, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Why did Christ use this analogy? Why did Christ use this particular word to portray the Christian's relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, the Apostle John is very fond of this word, abide, the Greek word meno. He uses it 50 times in, this, in his gospel. In fact, in chapter 15 alone, he used it 15 times in 10 verses. He says again and again, Meno, Meno, Meno. Abide, abide, abide. This word is rich in meaning. The Greek word is so rich that it conveys more than any one English word is able to capture. In fact, this word occurs 120 times in the New Testament. And the English translators have used various words to translate this Greek word. They've used words like abide 61 times, remain 16 times. If you remain in me, some translations say, dwell, continue 11 times, tarry 9 times, and endure 
three times. I say all of that just to show to you that the richness of this word, a word steeped with meaning. Now, in our context, I believe our Lord employs this word to highlight and illustrate his relationship with, with the Christian to highlight three aspects uh, of this word. Three perspectives, three significances of this word. Uh, that is why he employs this word. Quality, decision, and time. These three aspects. Quality, decision, and time. First of all, quality. He uses the word abide to connote the idea that there is a quality in the abiding. It is a degreed uh, relationship. A degreed relationship. Now let me explain that. As Christians, positionally, we have a perfect relationship, an unbreakable relationship, an unalterable, uncompromisable abiding with Christ. All Christians have that. But at the same time, there is a qualitative, degreed, abiding relationship that Christians have with Christ. So depending upon Christian, upon the Christian and his lifestyle, his habits, his behaviors, his abiding is different. Let me illustrate this. Everyone who is married is married. Husband and wife. Every husband and wife, they're married to one another. But every marriage relationship varies widely. Some marriages, they have an awful relationship. Almost non-existent. They barely talk to each other. It's a house, but it's not a home. They used to talk to each other. They used to pray and encourage and spur one another, really care and sympathize one another, but no longer. So although in, by the law they are husband and wife, relationally, practically, the relationship is almost non-existent. Other marriages, it's okay. You know, it's like vanilla ice cream. It's plain. Nothing bad, but nothing good. You know, they talk about the weather and talk about, you know, the weather and the weather. And they talk about the weather. And that's like vanilla ice, vanilla, not ice, vanilla ice cream. <laughs> relationship. And then there is a marriage relationship where husband and wife love one another, they care for one another, they serve, they exhort, they pray, they spur one another, and their relationship is rich. They're all married, but their relationships are vastly different. Likewise with Christians and Christ. It is true. All who are truly saved abide in Christ as a characteristic orientation of life. But in the church, there is is great variation in the quality of that relationship. Quality of that relationship. Some Christians, they're Christians. And yet their relationship with Christ is almost non-existent. Very poor quality. It's not alive. It's not dynamic. There is no communion. There is no interaction. There is no vibrancy. Some Christians, you know, they talk about the weather with Jesus, you know. And other Christians, they're abiding in Christ in the fullest sense. They're walking in the Spirit. They have a rich, vibrant, intimate, just growing relationship with Christ. And Christ used this word, I believe, to to illustrate 
that qualitative aspect of the relationship. It's not just once and for all, but it's the dynamic, abiding, degreed relationship. So let me ask you, how is the quality of your abiding in Christ? How would you rate your, quote, relationship with Christ and His Word? How will we discern how our relationship with Christ, how will we discern that? Would it be our feelings, emotions, experiences? How how can we judge the quality of our relationship with Christ? Well, let me give you five questions to evaluate your abiding relationship with Christ. Five tests that reveal the quality of your relationship with Christ. First of all, dissatisfaction with self. Dissatisfaction with self. The person who is pleased with his own righteousness will see no need for Christ's righteousness. They will see. If you think you're a good person, you're righteous, everything's fine, abiding will be an optional uh, commitment. You won't see a need to abide in Christ. Why do I need Christ? I'm fine on my own. But someone who is dissatisfied with one's own righteousness, a believer who sees their own wickedness and sinfulness and depravity clearly and specifically will cling to Christ because he or she will say, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. I cannot be righteous on my own. My righteousness comes from Him and Him alone. Therefore, there will be a growing dissatisfaction with oneself. Second, second test is freedom from dependence on external things for satisfaction. Freedom from dependence on external things for satisfaction. The second test of your relationship with Christ is that you are not dependent on things of this world for happiness and satisfaction. You are content in Christ. You are solely and fully satisfied in Christ. Before you sought joy and money, you sought happiness and acquiring material possessions. Before you just loved Friday and Saturday nights going out and living it up. You found much joy and pleasure and entertainment and relationships in this world. But you find a greater and greater distaste for these things and a greater joy in just your simple relationship with the living Savior. As Psalm has said in Psalm seventy-three twenty-five, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. As for me, verse 28, it is good to be near God. There is a sense of just true joy. Now, Westminster Catechism, the chief aim of man is to glorify God. How do we glorify God, as Piper said, by enjoying Him forever? So we know that our relationship with Christ, I see the thing in a marriage relationship, right? You know your marriage relationship is healthy if your friends call you and you're like, no, I want to stay home. Your friends call you, hey, let's go out, let's play sports. No, I love my wife. I love being with her. I love talking to her. I love spending time with my husband. You know your relationship with the wife is healthy if you're satisfied with your wife, with your husband. Well, likewise with Christ. Third 
test of your quality relationship with Christ is craving for the Word of God, craving for God's Word. We know of God's righteousness through God's Word. More we know of Christ's righteousness through His Word, more we hunger for His Word, more we want to know God's Word, and God's Word becomes our joy. God's Word becomes our, our satisfaction, our pleasure. We read the Word of God, not because we have to. It's not a discipline. It's not a must. But we want to. Because we find joy in Christ. Because our relationship with Christ is so rich. We savor His words. We delight in His words. We hunger for our intimate times with Him. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Job twenty three twelve. I am treasure the words of my of my Lord of His mouth more than my daily bread. And that's first I quote off in Psalm one nineteen ninety seven. Oh how I love your law. Oh how I love it. Fourth test, fourth test of your relationship with Christ. Joy over the difficult things of God. Joy over the difficult things of God. James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Christian who delights in Christ rejoices not just when things are going well, but over the trials, over the difficulties, because he or she knows that through this, God will bring him or her closer to Christ. Apostle Paul experienced this. In 2 Corinthians 6, 4-10, he reiterates again, just the many trials that he went through in his ministry. He closes that section by saying in verse 9, Genuine, yet regarded as impostors. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. And I love verse 10. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In a Christian's life, if you're following Christ, you're full of sorrow. You're full of heartache. It's difficult the road of Calvary carrying the cross. But if your relationship with Christ is, is, is intimate, because trials force us to cling to Christ all the more, we are rejoicing in our hearts. And you can ask my wife. I mean, I was miserable and in physical pain. But there was laughter in our household. There was quoting of Scripture. There was prayer. There was true joy. Because... Things in this world cannot rob one's relationship with Christ. In fact, the difficult things cause us all the more to cling to Him. So that's what Paul is saying. Full of sorrow, yet rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Paul had no money. And yet, because of the gospel ministry, he was making people rich in Christ, having nothing, yet possessing everything. How would you answer that? Are you rejoicing over the difficult things that are in your life right now? Are you grumbling? Are you complaining? Are you becoming bitter? Is your heart getting hardened and calloused? 
or because of your rich relationship, are you rejoicing? The final test is unconditionality. Unconditionality. A final mark of abiding in Christ is that the Christian has no conditions upon Christ. They do not ask for Christ and economic success. They don't say, yes, I will abide in Christ, but I also want personal satisfaction. Oh yes, I want an intimate relationship with Christ. I want to grow as a Christian. But you know, I must also, I must also have this other thing in life. Then I'll be happy. No. One who is abiding in Christ says, I'd rather have Jesus than anything else. He's all I want. He's all I need. I have no conditions upon Christ. They will agree with Apostle Paul. Acts 20:24. 20, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My life is nothing. My only desire is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. He wants Christ and will surrender all for Christ. The first reason I believe Christ employed this word, meno, abide, is to show the different quality, quality, the different variations, the degrees of the relationships that he has with his believers. A wide spectrum. Next sense of this word is decision. Decision. It's a command here in verse 4, abide in me. That tells us that this is a Christian's responsibility and he has a choice to make. Non-Christians, they do not have a choice. They are slaves to sin. Even though they are free to make the decisions, they can't choose their will. They will always choose sin. It's like having a shopping cart with a broken wheel. No matter how, how straight you want to push that cart, it will always veer to the right. Likewise, a non-Christian even he wants to desperately not lie again, he will lie. He will covet, he will cheat, he will steal. He will blaspheme God, he will have pride. Why? Because his, his will is corrupt. He is a sinner. So a non-Christian has no choice. They are bound to sin. As a Christian, we've been set free. And as a Christian... We have the freedom to choose. No, not positionally, right? Positionally, this, this, uh, he is our master. We are his slave. This, this bond cannot be broken. But practically, day by day, we have the freedom to choose to abide in Christ or not to abide in Christ. And verse 4 highlights that. It is a conscious decision a daily, moment-by-moment decision that is given to us whether we will abide in Christ or whether we will not abide in Christ. Let me illustrate it again from marriage. Um, you know, when, when I was a single man, I only thought about myself. All my decisions, my only concern was what I wanted. So I ate what I wanted, I ate when I wanted, I woke up when I wanted to wake up, I slept, you know, when I wanted to sleep. 
if I played ball and if I wanted to shower and sleep, I would. But if I didn't want to shower and go to sleep, I would because I'm the only one in bed. You know, who's going to know? I've done it so many times already. Who's going to know? All right. If I wanted to work out, I went and worked out. If I wanted to buy something, I asked myself, should I buy this? Yes, James, go out and buy this. <laughs> when you get married, you consider, and that's the response of the husband, right? Before you make a decision, you consider your wife. Before each decision. Right? And that's a big lesson that all husbands need to learn. And I learned this early on in my marriage life. I think where I was about three months into my marriage, like a Friday night or something, I had a friend over, uh, over for dinner and Sermon was out running errands. And we were kind of like, you know, bored, didn't have anything to do. And I remember a long time ago when I was a, living with some college buddies of mine, we, you know, got a ping, we bought a ping pong net, and on our dining room table we played ping pong. So I said, hey, you know, it was Shane, hey Shane, let's go. And we went to Target, and we bought a ping pong net, right? And we got paddles and balls, and I was all excited because you don't need the official ping pong table to have fun. You could play, and you could try it at home today. With your mom's table, dining room table. It works. And it's, really, it's still very fun. So we set it all up. We're ready to go. And I was about to hit the, uh, serve the ball with the very first time. And who comes walking in the door? My wife comes walking in the door. And right by her expression, I was, I was like, oh, what am I thinking? What am I doing here? Her expression was, she didn't say anything, but she was like, what are you doing? <laughs> That was a present from our parents, that brand new dining room table. I was like, sir, no, it's okay, you know, we won't harm it at all. But she's like, but well, what if you swing and you miss and you hit the table, you're going to mark it. Oh yeah, you're right. You know, we're going to ruin this table. So we undid it and, you know, put our table back and there was no ping pong that day. Right? Well, that's what husbands have to learn. Once you have a child, husbands learn and fathers learn. When you make a decision, you think about your wife and you think about your your child. When you have two, before you make a decision, you think about your wife and your children. That's how we make decisions as we have this relationship with our wives and our families. We make decisions. Same thing with Christ. We are to consider Christ first. Day by day, moment by moment, if we are abiding in Christ, we consider Christ first. When we make decisions about work, if we're, we're non-Christians, we just think about ourselves. What do we want? But as Christians, because of our relationship with Christ, our first concern is, what would Christ think? How does this affect my relationship with Christ? In terms of finance, in terms of speech, how to spend time, how to spend money. Because of our relationship with Christ, before we consider our wives or husbands, before we consider our members of our family, our first consideration is a relationship with Christ. And it is not automatic. Moment by moment, day by day, you and I choose. It's a decision. Will we consider Christ or will we not? Will we abide in Christ and will we not? Well, the first aspect is quality. Second aspect is decision. And the last sense is one of time, one of duration. And, and this can be argued as the main meaning of verse 4. Central meaning of the Greek word meno is to remain, to continue. It conveys a concept involving some period of time. 
our Lord was addressing the disciples. And He knew he would, he would be on the cross within a day. And He was talking to them. And what He had in mind was the rest of their lives. Peter, John, Thomas, I'm going away, but continue in Me. Remain in Me. Be steadfast in Me. Endure in Me. Abide in Me. This idea of continual relationship with Christ, a prolonged period of time of following Christ. Other New Testament words point to this important aspect of the Christian faith, that it is not a moment, it is not an event, but it's a prolonged time period. And that's what God is concerned with. John 14, 21 Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. That word keeps. Involving time. He is the one who loves me. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will continue in my word. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know we have come to know Him if we keep, if we continue His commandments. 1 John 2.5 Whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. Do we see that? That Christ is not interested in one experience, one event, one day. He wants a continuation of the relationship with all of us. Another New Testament word, or another word that our Lord employed to give this sense of time and duration is the word follow. Matthew 4.19, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 9.9, when he saw Matthew, the tax collector, he said, follow me. Matthew 16.24, take up your cross and follow me. John 10.4, talking about his sheep, my sheep, what do they do? They follow Christ. A stranger they will not follow. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And what do they do? They follow Christ. They continue in their relationship with Christ. John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And that is the idea here in verse 4. That again, the Christian life is not an event but it's a lifetime continual process. It is a call to discipleship, a call to die and to keep dying, to continue to die. It is a call to believe, not just that one day, but a call to keep on believing. A call to follow Christ and keep following Christ. So who is a true Christian? A Christian is someone who loved Christ, loves Christ, and continues to love Christ. Christian is someone who keeps following Christ, who abides in Christ. Events like baptism. Now, Janice didn't come here and say, I'm a Christian because I was baptized. Janice didn't come up here and say, you know, I'm a Christian because I walked down the aisle, I signed the dotted line. You know that prayer? That's a made-up prayer, the sinner's prayer. I pray that prayer, that's why I'm saved. She didn't say that. She continues to follow Christ. 
She first followed years ago, but she continues to follow. And that is the evidence of true Christianity. And that is what Christ is pointing to. Continuing of faith, obedience, love, and discipleship are biblical basis of true faith. That is true, therefore the opposite must be true. Colossians 1, 21-23, Paul talks about these believers at Colossae, and he said, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled you in His body of flesh by, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, Then he said in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith. If indeed you continue. Hebrews 3, 6, Christ is faithful over God's household as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Hebrews 3, 14, We share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm in the end. You see what Paul, the writer of Hebrews, is saying? You are Christians. But the proof of that is found not in an event in the past, but, but in the endurance, in the continuation of your following Him. You know, our church is blessed with many faithful saints. It's been with us throughout the years. There's a guy at our church. I was there when she graduated high school, graduated college. Um, I, I presided over her wedding. And now she, I will be there in the hospital room, God wills, when she has her first child. So I, we go back many years with many of you. You go on our website and you look back on the CDC album section, all those pictures. For you, my, for me, some of you, it might be an you know, interesting thing to look at, look at all these pictures. But for me, it's difficult. Look at some pictures from years ago. There are some who've left our church for various reasons, and they've gone to other churches and they're walking with the Lord. And for that, I rejoice. But there are some who just one day disappeared out of the face of the earth. They're doing great, loving the Lord. Some of them, I talked to them. I had a guy, my roommate in college, I was discipling him. We lived in the same house. We did Bible study one day, and next day he was gone. Next day he disappeared. I mean, he didn't disappear, but you know what I'm saying. We called him, we, you know, we called him and just talked to him, and he was seen on our campus. I've, I've yet seen him since then. He came into our house when we weren't there and moved this stuff out. Haven't seen him since. Well, there are people like that at Cornerstone, absolutely just vanished. They're no longer walking with the Lord. Outwardly, they're doing fine. But inwardly, they were led astray, and they're no longer continuing in Christ. Well, that reveals that he or she was not a true believer, because they no longer continue to abide in Christ. He was never real to begin with. The Bible is clear that the false will always leave, sooner or later. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have mennoed. They would have abided. They would have remained. They would have continued with us. 
But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Second John, verse 9, Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. We're not talking about people who go to other churches and continue to follow Christ. That's great. But it's speaking about those who leave the church of Jesus Christ, who leave the faith. You know, I, I thought about asking the internet ministry to remove those pictures, you know, because they're just difficult to look at. But I decided against it. It's good for us. Good for us to keep praying for them, that they might still repent. And also good for us to humble us, that we have just started the race, at the point of the Christian life is not to start the Christian life. It's not to hold, shake Christ's hands and let go. The point of the Christian life is to abide in Christ and to keep on abiding. That the point of this Christian race is not to start the race, but to finish it. Somebody was telling me, hey, Pastor James, you must feel good, you know, to, you know, to kind of arrive and to be, quote, unquote, you know, successful and be doing well. And I I snapped back at him and said, what are you talking about? I could think tomorrow. I've just started the race. For me to become confident and I think I can coast in, I, I, there's no sense of that in my heart. First Corinthians 10, 12, be careful that I don't fall. I've just started this race as all of you. That's why Christ says, abide in me. The focus is not start with me. The focus is continue, endure in me. Reminds us of one of the great themes of the Bible, Hebrews 10.36. Hebrews, the writer says, you, need, you have need of endurance. Matthew 24.13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. There are many commands in the Bible to stand firm in the Lord. Philippians 4.1 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast the teachings that we have given to you. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 Do not grow weary in doing good. 2 Timothy 3.14 As for you, continue in what you have heard. Hebrews 10.23 let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Revelation 2.25 Hold fast until I come. James 1.12 Remain steadfast under trial. Persevere under trial. The assumption behind all these biblical texts is that the Christian life is hard. There is the danger that professing Christians will get tired of doing good. They'll get sick of it. They'll become weary. That's what the Bible says. Do not grow weary in doing good. There is a danger that we will fail to heed our lives and our doctrine. There is a danger that we will just drift through life. And that will be led astray. Tempted to quit. Tempted to walk away from Christ. That is the command that Christ is giving us. Abide in me. That is our responsibility. You do that. You continue in Him. 
you have a rich, intimate, bountiful relationship with Christ. You make that decision day by day. Every moment you consider Christ first because of your relationship with Him. And you continue. You don't want shortcuts. You don't want quick fixes, magic pills. You continue in Christ. Christ promises us, guarantees we will bear much fruit. Our Heavenly Father, we do confess that you know our hearts. We confess that your word is living and active, shepherd any double-edged sword. That your word is so powerful that it overpowers the inadequacies and the inabilities of the preacher. That's how powerful your word is. It is a mirror that lays bare and reveals to us who we are. And you strike us to the core. And Lord, we confess that our relationship with you is weak. That we neglect you often and consistently. That we confess that we do not consider you in making our decisions. That we want easy Christianity where things will happen automatically rather than a proactive day-by-day, moment-by-moment, considering our relationship with you and who you are. And we confess, Lord, that we don't have the long view in terms of our Christian faith. That our mindset is too, too short. Our perspective, too short. Oh, Lord, may we be faithful branches abide in the true vine and so that as we bear fruit it will give glory and honor to you God we pray that you would raise up such believers in our midst in secret areas of our lives in private they will be abiding in you we thank you God for this Lord's day and this word in Jesus name we pray Amen.